A few housekeeping things. This is our first time using the Zoom platform for a webinar, so please bear with us if we have any technical difficulties. Hopefully, those will be kept to a minimum. There is a Q&A space as well as a uh, as a, a comment space or a excuse me a um, I'm sorry I'm just looking to see what the uh, what it's called now. <laughs> As I said this, so we have a chat, excuse me, and a chat space. So um, please use the chat if you have any comments between yourselves, and please use the Q&A to, to write down any questions that you have, and we will answer them at the end of the program. Also, as I noted a couple minutes before we got started, the, um, oops, sorry about that, and let me go back up. There we are. Um, we have subtitled this program, as you could probably see at the bottom. So it was something new that was available, and I thought that'd be useful for people who have um, um, uh, maybe hearing impairment, et cetera, for them to be able to access this program as well. So we'll see how that goes. I know sometimes they can be useful and sometimes not. And without further ado, we're going to get started again. Thank you for joining us. And before I forget, um, our website is nursinghome411.org. This program, the PowerPoint, is already on the website. There'll also be links to the program on YouTube at us and our podcast. But we also have a lot of really good materials, uh, fact sheets, some of which we'll talk about today, um, and other materials, information and data on COVID-19, on residents' rights, et cetera. Uh, our programs tend to be content heavy, such as this one, but you don't have to worry about taking notes or remembering everything. Really what we wanna do is plug in with you on some of the issues that we're seeing, especially today in regard to COVID-19 and its impact on nursing home residents. But all the resources that we talk about and other information are available for free to use and share on our website. Again, nursinghome411.org. So what are we gonna be talking about today? Uh, we're gonna provide an update on state and federal actions to address the pandemic, just to give you a broad overview of some of the things that have been going on since early March when the um, pandemic actually first um, hit the US. I think February 28th was the first outbreak in Washington state. Uh, we're gonna provide an overview of some research on COVID-19 and LTC facilities, some of the things that we know or some of the insights that we have gained, not we LTCCC, but researchers in general have gained so far. Uh, we're gonna talk about some of the various policy proposals that are being bandied about uh, on the Hill in Washington, DC. And then uh, again, some of the resources that we have related to the issues that we're talking about today on our website, nursinghome411.org. And again, we'll leave um, a time at the end for Q&A. So I'm going to first talk about current state and federal actions to address the pandemic. We're gonna talk about some of the federal changes first. So as I said, starting in March, right after it hit the uh, Washington facility, and this was again, after we saw the outbreak, of course, in China, and then an outbreak um, that hit Italy very hard and Spain very hard, both the general populations and their nursing home and adult care facility populations, that we had seen a lot of what was going on in those, um, uh, in those countries. And we had hoped at the time that that would better prepare us here in the United States to prevent the, um, 
uh, you know, the decimation that we unfortunately wound up seeing uh, among nursing home residents and adult care facility residents in this country. And that uh, sadly is an ongoing problem. But what's happened in, in early March is that the federal government, that's the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that's the federal agency that oversees nursing home care, hospital care, home health care, et cetera. Uh, they, uh, they put forth a number of changes. Uh, most of these, actually, I think everything that we talked about here is an actual change in policy. They also, as well as the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have issued a variety of recommendations over the past several months. But what we're talking about here, here is really the policies. And the reason why that is important an important distinction before we move on is because the um, if it's a policy, if it's something that the feds, the CMS is saying has to be done, that's one thing. If it's just a recommendation, that means that it could be done, but it doesn't mean that it has to be done. And I think that has unfortunately added to the confusion that we see both in the larger community as well as um, in among nursing homes and adult care facilities, particularly nursing homes, over the last several months uh, across the country. So this is again, some of the highlights in terms of the changes that were implemented starting in March. Uh, CMS said no family or Amazon visitation. That's, uh, that extended until fairly recently. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but they essentially shut the door on families and long-term care ombudsmen going into facilities. Um, as I said, they recently provided recommendations for state based reopening of those facilities. So we're seeing some changes. We'll talk about that again a little bit more uh, further on in the program. But for, for most residents now in facilities, there is still um, either no or extremely limited opportunity for visitation in our home state of New York or in other states. That is opening up a little bit, but very, very little. Um, and we're still very concerned about that. And we know a lot of people, if you have a story that you can tell, uh, this is just as an aside, we have an action center on our website and you could fill out a tell my story form. I hear from reporters every single week asking me um, if, I can, you know, if I could connect them with any families or provide any family stories of um, people who were, uh, have not been able to visit their residents and what is happening with that. So if you can share, uh, please do that. We can keep you anonymous if you prefer. But that would be uh, very helpful to getting change implemented because the more people know, of course, uh, the more likely we're able to make change. Uh, so visitation, um, again, the blockade that we essentially saw since the beginning of March. Reimbursement change. So reimbursement is how nursing homes are paid for the care that they provide to Medicaid and Medicare residents. So a couple of things here. One is that um, there is a very high payment for COVID-19 patients that are coming into the facility. And in addition to the high payment for those residents, the feds also relax the Medicare benefit limits. So normally in order to qualify for a Medicare stay in a nursing home, which again pays a very high rate, the rate for COVID-19 residents on average in the United States is about $670 per day uh, for nursing home care, $670 per day. Think about that. Um, but in addition to that, they relax the benefits to qualify for a stay at a Medicare rate. And that uh, is, was done, excuse me, in two ways. One 
is that they eliminated the three-day hospital stay. Normally, you have to have stayed in a hospital for three nights uh, in order to be able to get uh, the Medicare benefits. Secondly, and this is probably even more important, is that normally Medicare benefits for a nursing home stay are limited to 100 days. And the Trump administration eliminated that 100-day uh, benefit period. Now, this is uh, on one hand really good in that it enabled people to have continued access to Medicare benefits for their nursing home stay uh, beyond the 100-day limit given, you know, this is again for as long as the pandemic crisis is, uh, is in place. So it's good that they have access to those benefits. The problem is, is that with the lack of, of strong monitoring and oversight, is that we saw very early on that a lot of residents uh, who had been living in the facility prior or coming into the COVID-19 pandemic were dumped. So, so a lot more um, inappropriate discharges of residents. And the reason for that is because um, uh, in the absence of monitoring and oversight, some providers got rid of residents who might have been lower paying in order to take in residents that were higher paying. So that is a, uh, uh, that's one of the downsides of that change to reimbursement. Um, next, testing. So I know that testing has been an issue. Testing continues to be an issue, uh, both in the public, you know, in, in the larger communities, as well as in our nursing home and adult care facility communities. Now, nursing homes um, can get payment for testing, both for residents and for staff, if they're not covered by insurance for testing that can be paid for. And this is something we'll talk a little bit more about later on that we are also, uh, we and others are working on on the federal level to improve the testing processes. But here we're just talking about the payment. So the so this is uh, important because it just is to let you know that nursing homes will be reimbursed and are being reimbursed for, um, for testing. There's, if I remember correctly, a couple hundred million dollars that was set aside um, by the federal government for testing in an earlier stimulus packages, one of those packages that came out to provide uh, financial relief to families and to individual Americans, as well as to businesses. Uh, this is um, this last point here is one of the most important points from our perspective and in our work is that CMS waived a number of important rules in response to the pandemic, including they waived minimum staff training and certification requirements. So normally one has to be, in order to provide care in a nursing home, uh, one ha has to be at least a certified nurse aide, which requires minimally a 75-hour certification training program. Uh, many states have actually higher certification requirements, 100 hours in our home state. Some states have 150. Some of the good providers even require much more. The unions, as I last, last time I checked, were requiring even, or had programs, I should say, that had even higher number of hours, recognizing that 75 hours is really not sufficient to know how to provide care and services in a dignified and appropriate way for most residents. So what happened here is that CMS waived that requirement. So the provider associations, the, the lobby associations, they've come up with training programs, alternatives, that have as little as eight hours of training for a certified nurse aide. So this is something that's of 
major concern to us. I mean, think about it. Nursing home residents now are particularly vulnerable. Um, we're dealing with COVID-19. A lot of facilities are dealing with a lot of uh, neglect and other issues um, we're hearing about in facilities across the country. And we have staff coming in that have even less training. The purpose of this was to, as with you know, a number of these changes, was to facilitate having staff and facilitating the uh, availability uh, and access to nursing home care. However, fundamental from our perspective is that that care has to be good and safe. It doesn't make any sense to provide uh, people with access to care if that care itself is poor or dangerous. So just a couple of things here in which, in which we're weighing as we think about this and which we think that the federal government and the state governments should be considering as well much more carefully than perhaps they did at the beginning. But here, as you can see, they reduced the staff training and certification requirements. That included for um, licensed nurses, that professional nurses, that they didn't have to, um, you know, they, they were accepting people who were just graduating from school, et cetera. Um, not quite as dangerous in, in my mind as the uh, absence of the full certification requirement for certified nurse aides. They also removed the 30-day notice for facility-initiated transfer in cases related to COVID-19 cohorting, meaning keeping people together who are COVID-19 positive, separating people who are COVID-19 negative from people who are positive, et cetera. So what the feds did was they eliminated that transfer rule, uh, which normally says you have to give 30 days notice before you do a transfer or discharge. They say you don't have to give notice that you could transfer or discharge someone within a day if it was related to COVID-19 cohorting. Unfortunately, that has not been well uh, monitored and some facilities have taken advantage of that. Getting back to what I mentioned before about the reimbursement, some facilities, you know, unfortunately going for the higher dollar signs. Again, not all, but some of them. And so we've saw people immediately that were transferred. Once you had the combination of the absence of having to give notice and a right to appeal that comes with the notice, as well as the higher payment for COVID-19 residents, that, um, that led to uh, a lot of reports that we heard of people that were being discharged inappropriately to homeless shelters and other situations, which um, may not be safe and certainly were not likely to be appropriate for them. Uh, lastly, here on the slide, the um, CMS waived the requirements that facilities report daily staffing levels, as well as the MDS, that's the minimum data set quality measures. And that's something that was very, very concerning to us. Uh, now, as I've said a couple of times, more than ever, we need to know that the residents are getting quality care, that there's sufficient staffing to provide the care that they need and the monitoring that they need, and that we know what is going on. We know what those staffing levels are, and we know what the results of the quality measures. Quality measures are based upon what's called, the, the again, the minimum data set uh, assessment of residents and that includes whether they had falls, includes whether they have lost control of their bowel or their bladder, or if they've had um, issues regarding if they've been given antipsychotic drugs or other psychotropic drugs, if they are um, losing weight, things like that. All this information is so, so important. From our perspective, how are we going, how are we going to be able to address um, these issues going forward? How are we going to 
deal with a second wave or what we're seeing a continuation of the first wave in Florida and Texas and California and other parts of the country if we don't know what happened here and what facilities were safer than others and what made for a safer versus a more dangerous facility. Lastly, in terms of the, um, some of the federal changes regarding COVID-19 is that uh, starting in May 20, May 2020, excuse me, two months ago, nursing homes were required to report cases, deaths, the PPE, personal protective equipment supplies, staffing sufficiency, and more to CDC. And the um, CMS, in turn, is reporting that information to the general public. And as Eric will talk about later, we're collecting and publishing that information uh, on our website. We're updating that every single week for every facility uh, that reports that information in the country. So you can see that information, you can see where your facility is. Uh, importantly, and as, that's why I note here, it started in May 2020, is that we missed the first couple of months of the uh, pandemic, and therefore we don't have that information. Nursing homes can, if they choose to, report these data from January 1st on, but they're not required to. So that has, in short, resulted in a real mess. Some facilities are reporting from January 1st, some are reporting from February, some are reporting from March, uh, and others are reporting from April, and then a lot of them are just reporting from May. So you have a whole different range of information, and it's not always clear um, you know, where facilities are in their reporting. So that is a real problem. It inhibits, to say the least, our ability to understand where the outbreak is, what has gone on, um, et cetera. So, we, are, uh, we and others are advocating, again, in Washington, D.C., to try to get that reporting to be retroactive uh, because it's really important, to, again, really important for us to know what has gone on. Um, and these are a couple other things that are also important to us and our work and our advocacy is that in March, CMS limited surveys, that's the inspe state inspections, to only focus on infection control and immediate jeopardy. And those infection control surveys were very short. Normally, a survey team goes in for several days every year. Uh, they're supposed to be responding to allegations of harm and immediate jeopardy by going into a facility. And the, what we've seen is those infection control surveys can last only a few hours, uh, not even a full day. Uh, and they tend to be very cursory. And the, um, the results so far have not been very promising. That changed somewhat in June. So in June, CMS required that the state survey uh, for infection control all the facilities in the state or they run the risk of reducing, of uh, getting having a penalty in the CARES Act funds, the federal funds that um, the state survey agencies receive. Those state survey agencies are your Department of Health or your Department of Public Health. Um, so that is something that is, uh, I guess somewhat valuable. Again, those infection control surveys aren't great, but it is important that these surveyors get in there. They require the additional COVID-19 surveys for facilities with a higher number of cases and deaths. Again, somewhat good, but only as good as those surveys are. Um, it allowed states to resume normal surveys. Again, that you know, annual survey process, responding to complaints more rigorously. Uh, in phase three of the nursing home reopening guidance, for those of you who have some familiarity, there's different phases of reopening. So if you're in phase three of reopening in your state or in your area, then you, could, you can 
resume normal surveys. But uh, fortunately, this has been left up to the states. And to my knowledge, we have not seen normal survey um, activities resume. And then lastly, it does provide for uh, enhanced enforcement for infection control deficiencies. And this is really important because study after study, even during the pandemic has found that many facilities are just failing to provide appropriate infection control. Uh, the surveys that were conducted in March of these limited surveys, the ones that were conducted in March, they found nationwide that over a third of them uh, were not, a third of facilities, excuse me, that were surveyed were not undertaking appropriate hand washing, uh, even at the, in the midst of this uh, pandemic. So that is, as you can imagine, pretty scary and, and pretty, uh, pretty appalling <laughs> to find that. So uh, CMS has uh, provided for enhanced enforcement, meaning uh, greater penalties for infection control deficiencies. Whether this will be meaningful, we have yet to see. But um, unfortunately, uh, from our perspective, there should have been much more enforcement over the past years for longstanding and pervasive infection control problems in nursing homes. Uh, I'm gonna talk about a few of the state, a few highlights of the state changes. So states have themselves have undertaken a variety of responses to the pandemic. About 20 states now are giving legal immunity to nursing homes for virtually any kind of substandard care or neglect, any kind of harm, even if a resident dies. Uh, this means that the family member or the resident, if he or she is still alive, cannot sue. Um, the, uh, so that's about 20 states now, as I said, uh, reporting prior to May, prior to that federal reporting, Many states were requiring nursing homes to report a range of information related to the spread of COVID-19. And that was true, as I note here, for both nursing homes and adult care facilities. The CMS information, the information I just mentioned before about reporting only applies to nursing homes. But on the state level, states have been often calling for both nursing homes and adult care facilities to report that information to the public and often on a public website as well. Um, states have had different policies regarding uh, testing for both residents and staff in terms of frequency, et cetera. And then, as I mentioned, the visitation has started to open up over the past, let's say, month or month and a half or so. And states have adopted very different policies in regards to visitation, uh, some of them allowing visitation outside, some of them being to allow visitation inside. And that's often based upon the COVID-19 cases in those facilities and in the surrounding communities. This is based as I think I mentioned before, on CDC recommendations, not CMS requirements. Again, that important distinction. So the feds did come out with recommendations, but they did not spell it out. So we're seeing a lot of variety from state to state. I just want to know two resources here. One, the Consumer Voice has a really great website section on state information policy. So you can see exactly what's going on in your state in regard to these issues. Uh, and it's updated pretty frequently. I was on it uh, over the weekend. And then secondly, we put together a blueprint for restoring residents' rights to visitation and care. Uh, and that's available on our website. It's called Let Our People In, a Blueprint for Restoring Residents' Rights uh, Again, to Visitation and Care. Uh, some of the per uh, perspectives as uh, consumers is that we're very glad that they reinstated the staff reporting requirement. Uh, this was just announced a couple of weeks ago. So uh, facilities will not have to report their staffing for January, February, and March. 
but they will have to report their daily care staffing and non-care staffing and agency staffing for starting April 1st. That won't be released into the fall. There's always a pretty significant delay. So normally around this time, we would be seeing it for the first quarter, but unfortunately, as far as CMS is concerned, they're never going to require facilities to report that. Uh, but we will start seeing it for April 1st, and that is a certainly a step in the right direction. Uh, we're very concerned, as I think I, I alluded to before, that nursing homes are being given essentially a permanent holiday on every reporting, the payroll-based staffing data, the first few months, January, recovery, March, and for those other quality measures about what's going on with their residents, still January, February, March, April, May, we're now in, in July, they, you know, when will that reporting get back? It's really important that we have that information because without it, we will not know what has gone on or how to possibly address it in the future. We really owe it to the residents who have been in nursing homes, the residents who have suffered in nursing homes, the residents who have died in nursing homes, and to prevent that in the future. Uh, there's, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, there continues to be a blockade on family and Amazon visitation throughout the country and a lot of hurdles there. It gets back to testing issues, it gets back to safety issues, et cetera. Uh, we're very concerned about the continued absence of regular surveys and complaint investigations. And I hear of states that have an enormous backlog of complaints. I hear of state agencies, uh, including in our home state, who are telling people, turning people away who are, wanna file complaints. Very, very concerning. And if you're turned away from filing a complaint uh, with your state agency, I recommend definitely speaking to your long-term care ombudsman, but also calling your state um, and or your, your state legislator and or your uh, congressional representative, because it is really important that they hear from us uh, that these things are going on. As I mentioned earlier, we're very concerned about those relaxed staff certification requirements that people can be providing care with as little as eight hours. We wanna see that change back to at least 75 hours, and that the people who are there uh, who have been working with less training are either brought in for, for full training and certification as quickly as possible. And again, we need uh, better monitoring and I think some changes to the, to the, the discharge um, notice requirements that have been relaxed because too many facilities, and CMS has recognized this, too many facilities are over-interpreting that and they're discharging residents inappropriately when it has nothing to do with COVID-19 cohorting. And now I'm going to turn it over to Eric, who's gonna talk about some of the research that, um, that we've been doing. Oh, sorry, Eric, let me see if I can get back to you. Right. Well, thank you. Thanks, Richard, and thanks everybody for checking in on our first Zoom interview. I see that people are asking questions and in the chat and that's great uh, that people are active and we want to make this, um, uh, we want to capitalize on, on these newer tech features. So thanks for being here. For the next uh, 15 minutes or so, I'll be talking about the existing research on COVID-19 in long-term care settings. Uh, you might be hearing bits and pieces of information about research, about data on COVID-19 on television, on the radio, on Twitter, on Facebook. And my aim here today is to synthesize these research studies and convey what we know and also 
convey maybe what we're less certain about uh, regarding COVID-19 in long-term care settings. So before diving into the research studies, I just thought I'd give a little bit of background about why uh, things have been so devastating in long-term care settings. Uh, I'm sure none of you are pro probably surprised by this, but there's a, uh, I wrote long-term care plus COVID-19 equals recipe for disaster. Uh, long-term care facilities often have poor care, lacks enforcement. It's a uh, often vulnerable population and uh, there is uh, uh, often not a great sta state, local or federal response. And when you added COVID-19, which is deadly, contagious. Um, we don't have a vaccine yet. We're starting to maybe have some improved treatment, uh, but this thing is a moving target. And for as much as we understand now, and it's more than what we understood in March, there's still a lot about uh, COVID-19 that we don't know. So, Given that it's uh, it's not surprising that there have been uh, that the numbers are here really tell a uh, horrifying story uh, from Kaiser Family Foundation as of July 9th uh, there are 284,000 COVID-19 cases that includes resident and staff in about 12,000 facilities, uh, 56,000 deaths. Um, that's 44% of the overall COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. Uh, CMS uh, has also provided numbers. They are, uh, they do not align completely with Kaiser Family Foundations. They have 200,000 confirmed and suspected cases and 36,000 deaths, um, and there's significant state and regional variation. And at the more local level, uh, the New York Department of Health has been tracking fatalities in, uh, in nursing homes and adult care facilities, and they're at 6,500 with the vast majority of reported deaths, 97% uh, in nursing homes. Uh, now, why do I have in the top right corner a, uh, a salt, a, a picture of a salt shaker? You should take all these data with a grain of salt. Um, there's under-reporting. Uh, there's some places where there's no reporting. There's data entry errors. There was a report. Um, yeah, there's a, I was trying to pull up the exact data point, but there was a, a report about a facility that had, uh, and, and these numbers aren't precise, but they had 80 beds and they were reporting about 300 fatalities and they were reporting no cases. So there are obviously data entry errors and last, uh, last but not least with regarding the incomplete data is it's not just cases and fatalities. That's not how we, me we should necessarily measure the impact of COVID-19. Uh, isolation, abuse, neglect, some substandard care. I know many of you here um, are feeling the effects of that, are feeling the effects of uh, visitation restrictions and these things can't be quantified, or at least they're, a lot of them are not being quantified. So no matter what numbers you see here, uh, there are things that, that the data might not capture. But with that said, I am going to uh, take a bit of a uh, dive into the research studies and explain what they are finding with the data that 
does exist. Um, and Richard, could you go to the next slide? And if you could pass it back to me, um, the remote, the electronic remote. I press some button that, okay, there we go. So uh, first I want to thank our, our uh, policy intern, Kira, who really helped in compiling the reports that I went through. Uh, there's a lot out there and there's a lot of uh, different, different studies uh, to look at. And she was a big help. Also the consumer voice conference had a, uh, a the national consumer uh, voice had a webinar on last Friday, which was very helpful in terms of my understanding of these issues. And I'll post a link to that in the chat when I'm finished. Uh, so we're going to be looking at risk factors for COVID-19 in long-term care facilities. Uh, and the specific variables we're looking at are staffing, are, so how are the uh, total staffing and how many uh, registered nurse staffing hours per resident day are there. Uh, we're also going to be looking at star ratings. So each nursing home facility is assigned a rating of one through five, five being the strongest, one being the weakest. And we're going to analyze whether that's been a predictor for nurse for uh, COVID-19 cases. Uh, we'll be looking at deficiencies, so health inspection and infection control citations. Uh, we'll look at the studies examining race and socioeconomic status, uh, so race and ethnicity, uh, whether facilities with more Medicaid beds are experiencing different results. And lastly, we'll look at facility size and ownership. So number of beds, whether they're for profit or nonprofit. Okay, and just an important statistics reminder, uh, association is not correlation or causation is not correlation. Here we have a picture of a, a sun pointing to ice cream and also pointing to uh, sunburn. And I can go from personal experience yesterday, uh, I was out in the sun for a few hours. I also had a half pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and I got a little bit of sunburn and it was not the ice cream that did it. It was the, it was the 98 degree New York City heat. So just a word of caution as we analyze these data moving forward. So we're starting with staffing and it's not a coincidence that this is our first variable we're looking at. Uh, the numbers that we're finding are fairly convinced. Well, outside of COVID-19, better staffing is better care. And that's also what we're finding to be the case during this pandemic as far as avoiding COVID-19 cases and COVID-19 fatalities. Uh, Dr. Charlene Harrington looked at uh, COVID-19 in California facilities and found that facilities with COVID-19 cases were more likely to be understaffed. Uh, so there were worse outcomes for facilities with 4.10 uh, total staffing hours per resident day and less than 0.75. Uh, similarly, a study on Connecticut nursing homes found that uh, that higher registered nurse staffing was associated with fewer COVID-19 deaths. And some uh, quick, uh, fast facts about staffing. HPRD is hours per resident day. RN is registered nurse. LPN, licensed practical nurse. And also, why are we um, 
using 4.1 and 0.75. That's because a 2001 federal study identified 4.1 total staff HPRD and 0.7 RN HPRD as the minimum required to meet residents' needs. So we also are, uh, several studies have also looked at infection control and health deficiencies. Uh, one study, uh, and this is by uh, Dr. Harrington, was that better, found that better staffing ratings were associated with fewer infection control deficiencies and lower health deficiencies. Uh, another uh, more research by the Center for Medicare Advocacy found that lower staffed facilities were twice as likely to receive infection control deficiency citation as the highest staffed facilities. And there's also a, a Kaiser Health News article uh, from April, this was early on, uh, that showed that many five-star nursing homes have infection control lapses. Uh, we also looked at overall star rating. So again, one is bad, uh, five, I wrote five equals good. And that's, and I wrote sometimes good because um, while a, uh, one of the limitations of the five star rating is that while, uh, is that they're better at identifying problem facilities than they are potentially at identifying good homes. Uh, so these ratings are based on health inspections, based on staffing, and based on quality measures. And some of the quality measures are self-reported, so those are also vulnerable to um, inflation. So with that said, uh, there have been mixed findings as far as whether star ratings have any association uh, among in the Connecticut study and I'll also have a slide which include refer includes references and links to all of these studies at the end, so you can refer to them later. Uh, but among facilities with at least one case, uh, four or five star facilities were less likely to have confirmed cases versus one to three star facilities. A different study did not find that there was any association between overall ratings and COVID-19 cases. And there was a recent report by the New York Department of Health, which similarly found no evidence that ratings were related to fatalities in New York facilities. So mixed results on that front. Uh, race and socioeconomic status. Uh, there have been uh, many headlines uh, and there's been well-deserved attention to this issue. Um, and it's aligned with what the research studies have found that a higher concentration of Medicaid residents and racial ethnic minority residents is associated with more confirmed cases. Uh, this is from the Connecticut study. Early data suggests less social distancing in lower income neighborhoods, possibly due to lack of job security and other disadvantages and other higher COVID-19 contraction rate among racial minorities. Um, prior research, this is not Revelatory prior research has also found uh, worse outcomes in long-term care settings among uh, minority, uh, racial and ethnic minority residents. So, um, and it's also true of the population outside of um, outside of long-term care. Uh, there was a New York Times article which found a really striking finding that majority Black and Latino facilities were twice as likely to be hit by. COVID-19 compared to overwhelmingly white facilities. 
And then similarly, uh, another uh, study by Abrams found the facilities with higher percentages of African-American residents were more likely to have COVID-19 cases. And our, the last variable we're looking at are, I guess it's two variables, but uh, facility size and ownership status. So does facility size matter? Uh, there are findings that larger facilities uh, and urban location are associated with higher cases. Uh, nursing homes with more confirmed cases or deaths were also more likely to be large for-profit facilities affiliated with a chain and having a higher resident census. Uh, you see on the right here, I uh, made a little graphic. Uh, this is uh, one potential cause of this is just the sheer amount of people and crowding and uh, just a vision to scene uh, of three people, of uh, three residents in a enclosed space and the uh, COVID-19 can spread from that um, proximity. Uh, but with that said, uh, ownership status, there are mixed findings as far as whether that has had an association with COVID-19 outcomes. And when I say ownership status, I mean for-profit versus non-profit versus government. So studies found varying results regarding association between for-profit status and COVID-19 cases. And as far as implications for policy and practice, uh, you can see in bold and underlined in red, uh, more staffing, that's the case before COVID-19, that's gonna be the case after COVID-19, and it's especially the case right now as facilities are, um, or as, as we are aiming to do whatever we can to protect residents and to ensure that they maintain the care they're entitled to during this time. Um, and I wrote especially RNs um, who are a crucial part of total staffing, uh, stronger enforcement of staffing standards, uh, stronger enforcement of infection control, and lastly, addressing disparities faced by Medicaid and racial and ethnic minorities. And here's our list of uh, references that uh, you can access through the slides. And if you want, I can also, if you reach out to me, um, but it's eric at ltccc.org, I will gladly send you these links. Again, that's eric, E-R-I-C at ltccc.org. And I will hand it back to Richard. Uh, you're, you're muted, Richard. Thanks, Eric. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so thanks, that was really, really interesting and useful. So I'm gonna talk quickly about some of the policy proposals. I realize we're about uh, 16 minutes away from the top of the hour, and so we'll hope to finish up in the next 16 minutes, and then we could stay on for some uh, Q&A if there is any. The, um, so I'm gonna talk about quickly is um, some of the COVID-19 uh, emergency support uh, policy ideas and proposals that are out there. Uh, and some things regarding immunity, again, immunity from lawsuits that we talked about before and our concerns about that. Uh, some of the proposals regarding accountability and transparency, as well as visitation. Uh, so here's a list of the bills. I'm not gonna go into them, but again, they're on our website right now, along with the links that Eric had just um, said will be on the PDF, so you can look them up yourself. We wanted to provide everyone with just the information from what 
one, what bills are out there uh, in both the U.S. House uh, of Representatives and in the U.S. Senate and what's being bandied about. And these things, you know, it's, it's probably quite likely, frankly, that bits and pieces from different ones will be taken and kind of thrown into the stimulus bill and the next stimulus bill, which could happen within the next week or two. But again, those stimulus bills being those bills um, providing funding and resources to people, not just in nursing homes, but in its businesses at large and to uh, people at large, you know, some people got checks for $1,200. That was a previous stimulus bill, et cetera. So those are the kind of things that are very big bills. And we'll see, we are busy advocating as our uh, other organizations, uh, as very much our providers to get, uh, you know, to get money and to get resources put in where we think is best. So speaking of where we think is best, there's a couple of different ways when it comes to COVID-19 funding, as you can see here, and I have to give credit, Eric credit for putting these next two slides together, is that one thing that we don't like is just to give a handout to the nursing home businesses. Uh, we believe that the funding should go for, for care, for supplies, for staffing, for the PPE, uh, et cetera. It should go as closely as possible to the nursing home residents and the people who are providing care to them. And if there's no strings attached to the money, then what generally happens is that the money just goes into the provider's pocket. That's especially true for for-profits, for-profit companies, as Eric has been talking about. There is um, uh, always been a divide in terms of the overall quality of for-profits versus not-for-profits. The for-profits tend to um, put less of the money that they receive into staffing, into paying for staff, and into resident care. Uh, so we want to see accountability, no matter who is getting the money, whether it's a for-profit or not-for-profit, accountability as to where these funds go, not just throwing more, something you know, we already given hundreds of billions of dollars to the industry. So here, um, I tried to break it up a bit. So here are some of the proposals and some of our positions. Again, funding to date, as I just said, the U.S. government has given facilities billions of dollars in supplemental funds. The head of CMS, Seem Verma, has said publicly that the nursing homes are getting this with no strings attached. We want to have strings attached. Again, current proposals call for more direct support and additional money to support training and the provision of supplies. Those are some of the bills I mentioned about. Uh, as I've been saying, any funding to nursing homes must have strings attached to ensure that it goes to resident care and not to profits. We also, and this is from our perspective really important, money and resources should not be spent on training and helping nursing homes to meet the standards that they are already paid to achieve. If a nursing home, as I mentioned before, when we talked about the oversight and the inspections so far in the, in the month of March during the pandemic, that over a third of facilities were still not undertaking appropriate hand washing, we should not be pouring billions of dollars or millions of dollars or any dollars into giving, into training nursing homes or, or, or giving them schooling on that they should be washing their hands. They should know that they're supposed to be washing their hands. And if they're not washing their hands, they shouldn't be getting schooling and training and resources to do that. They should be penalized for not doing it. As I mentioned earlier, they're getting on average across the country, $670 per day for every COVID-19 patient. Another proposal which we 
have supported and actually um, you know, called for a number of these bills and are glad to see uh, there is something called strike teams. And this was first piloted or, or brought out in the state of Maryland. That's essentially assigning teams that consist of professionals, that consist of people who are clinicians, people that are have uh, expertise in infection control, et cetera, to go into facilities and to triage, to help residents, to make sure that these emergency situations, as Eric has said, we're seeing a lot of abuse and neglect uh, in, re in facilities now, that those residents are cared for as quickly as possible. However, our position is that they must include some measure of accountability. They must, as one bill require, as one bill proposes, require that those strike teams, if they see resident abuse and neglect, that they report that immediately to the state attorney general and to the state agency, the Department of Health. Uh, and also that there has to be other measures of accountability. Why? Because we do want to see those residents help. That is absolutely essential, but it sends a really poor message and a deleterious message to to residents and for residents' well-being, if we say to facilities, it's okay for you to sit on your hands, it's okay for you to not have adequate staffing and to have residents that are faced with um, uh, unmitigated outbreaks of COVID-19 or abject neglect and um, poor care and to say, we're gonna come in and we're gonna clean things up for you at no cost to you and no accountability for you. That sends a message that it's okay for those nursing homes to provide extremely poor substandard care and conditions and that someone else will come in and clean up the mess. And from our perspective, that is um, extremely dangerous. Uh, PPE and testing, we do, uh, there's a number of bills that are calling for the federal government to provide PPE to facilities. Uh, and there is now free testing, as the president announced a couple of weeks or two ago, uh, free testing will be coming out to facilities. And there are several bills out there that are calling for additional federal supports. That's something that we are also working on and supporting. Bottom line, in terms of the COVID-19 funding, as I've said a couple of times now, we believe it is a grave error to, to give nursing homes more money for a job poorly done. Uh, doing so only reinforces and perpetuates a system in which nursing homes get paid for having insufficient staffing, inadequate training, and too often deadly failures to even maintain effective infection control protocols. Uh, very quickly, because I know we don't have a lot of time here, two bills that focus particularly on litigation immunity. So what we heard um, on the Hill uh, Capitol Hill is that Mitch, a lot of these, these um, bills and these provisions are going directly from or through Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader's office, and they are talking about giving facilities five years, giving facilities and other businesses, I should say, five years of, of immunity from any lawsuit regarding substandard care, abject neglect, abuse, et cetera. And we, of course, think that is absolutely outrageous. Think again that, you know, as we've said from the start of this program, family members haven't gone in. Long-term care ombudsmen haven't gone in. The attorney general's offices have not been going in. The state survey agencies are not going in. There is no one minding the store. There is no one watching to see what is happening. And there is no one holding providers accountable. And we're hearing increasing reports of abject 
neglect in nursing homes. We need to have accountability. There has to be some leverage to ensure that facilities cannot get away with having uh, just, just glomming up residents, taking in residents without having sufficient staffing and providing them with the care that they need. Uh, very quickly, a few things about the accountability and oversight, again, that are being bandied about. These are some in some of the proposals that I mentioned earlier uh, in regard to oversight, regarding uh, requiring the Health and Department of Health and Human Services to collect and publish data on COVID-19 cases and deaths in nursing homes, intermediate care facilities, and psychiatric hospitals, and to issue a report analyzing what went on in these facilities. Um, another one is establish essential and ongoing oversight, including monthly briefings for Congress and an Office of Inspector General report on the, the Trump administration's response to the spread of COVID-19 in nursing homes, immediate care facilities, and psychiatric hospitals nationwide. Uh, we want to see, as I mentioned earlier, that the staffing and the other nursing home data be reported for the months that are missing now since January 1st of this year. And this is something we've talked about a bit in the past, but we are especially calling for a medical loss ratio here. And that simply means putting a cap on the amount of money that a nursing home, uh, that a nursing home receives for caring for a resident, that some amount of that, at least 80 or 85%, has to go to be caring for a resident, for something related to resident care. A lot of that is actually going to care staff. That's the biggest line item when it comes to a resident care um, cost, rather than, so it limits to 15 or 20%, preferably obviously 15%, uh, it limits the administrative cost and the profits that can be taken out. We understand facilities are in to make money. Maybe that's how our system works to some extent. Maybe that needs to change to some extent too. And the bottom line is there needs to be some limit to profit taking. Uh, there are also some proposals. Uh, Canada, the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform has a proposal regarding visitation and some really good materials on their website, visitationsaveslives.com. As I mentioned earlier, we have the blueprint and then I'm going to hand it back to Eric to talk about the, um, uh, some of the resources that we have. Okay, thanks Richard. And uh, I know someone commented the closed uh, captioning disappeared. Um, I'm not sure we'll be able to get that, that back. Richard, is there a, a button you see that can keep the uh, closed captioning for I, when I, I'm speaking? I, yeah, I thought that it might be on your end and maybe that's, maybe no. you'd have to set okay. up there. Well, so. well, apologies. Thanks for your patience on that. We'll hopefully get that sorted out or we'll figure that out for next time. Um, but anyway, I'm going to be talking about, quickly talking about our uh, COVID-19 resource center. And you can access this by logging onto our website, uh, nursinghome411.org slash coronavirus. And again, that's nursinghome411.org slash coronavirus. You can also go to our main page and there's a big bar at the top, a uh, big gray bar that'll say coronavirus resource center. And in what we've been doing here is posting a, a variety of resources, of data sets, of news and reports, and of federal guidance uh, and requirements uh, and other materials to uh, and having getting them all in one place uh, to keep you informed. So I'm just going to go over the four categories. Uh, first, our uh, resources. So we're uh, posting webinars, um, including this one. 
Uh, we also, we do these once a month. Uh, last month was identifying and, and addressing nursing home abuse and neglect. Uh, we've also uh, had a program understanding and advocating for resonance with dementia. And the, these webinars are just one hour programs that you can attend live uh, on Zoom as you are now, or you can watch them on YouTube, or you can download the audio. Uh, we're also, uh, speaking of audio, we also are hosting a podcast, the Nursing Home 411 podcast. Our most these are half hour conversations with experts with uh, with people uh, with advocates with people uh, with families and caregivers and long term care. Our last episode was about visitation uh, restrictions and the effect on families and we heard from uh, family members uh, detailing how visitation restrictions have impacted their how they've been impacted and how their loved ones have been impacted by visitation restrictions. And we also heard from uh, Tony Chikatel from Canner to talk about the policy. Um, we've also had po uh, podcasts about uh, for-profit or privatization of nursing homes with Dr. Harrington. And I, uh, I, we also recorded an episode with, uh, with an attorney, Will Smith, to talk about litigation immunity. Uh, and additionally, we post fact sheets on infection control. Uh, we have a fact sheet on stimulus checks. We actually just posted a fact sheet today highlighting some of the essential nursing home care standards that we're concerned might be infringed upon uh, during the pandemic. And that's, that's what we have here. Um, and you can go to, you can access this uh, on our website in the Coronavirus Resource Center, but as you see, uh, there are areas uh, such as staffing, uh, pressure ulcers, respect and dignity, dementia care that we've always been concerned about. But uh, at this, sorry about the traffic and the the cars in the background. But we're uh, highly concerned at at this time, and we want to give you the resources to help you ensure that that you and your loved ones are receiving the care that you're entitled to. Uh, we're also posting data sets both at the facility, at the state, uh, and at the federal level. Uh, these are again available in our Coronavirus Resource Center. If you click on the data tab and you can download uh, various information, this can help give you an idea about the state of affairs at a facility that maybe you have a relative or a loved one in and can help you uh, add uh, understand the re the cases, the fatalities, and what what is had the staffing levels at that facility. Um, and as noted before, we're publishing news and reports, including our blueprint for restoring visitation rights, uh, our emergency action plan for New York State. As I alluded to before, uh, we've linked to the New York Times op-ed. Uh, where uh, Richard uh, uh, noted that nursing homes were a disaster waiting to happen uh, due to poor care and lack standards that were widespread. And our last section is our federal guidance and requirements. These, we are, do not necessarily endorse these, but, um, or, or not endorse, but we just wanted to uh, post the information that is being published at the federal level, including an FAQ on 
nursing home visitation, on reopening recommendations, and other fact sheets and resources. Okay, and I guess I'll, uh, Richard, you want to take it from here? Thanks, Eric. Yeah. Go back up. Oops. There we go. So our next program will be August 18th at 1 p.m. It's going to be on reimagining nursing home care, looking to see where do we go from here. Um, and there's been a lot of different proposals out there from completely defunding nursing homes to uh, many of the provider association, the lobbyists are out there calling for less money, I mean, excuse me, more money and less oversight and less accountability. Uh, what can we do in, 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 in the world in which we live to make the uh, world in which nursing residents live uh, a bit better? So we're going to be talking about that. Uh, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. So Sarah, if you can unmute yourself, if there are any questions. There are a lot of questions. So the first one is, from Angel, are nursing homes required to allow video, Zoom, Skype visits, or is this an amenity that nursing homes are providing? Uh, so nursing homes, I mean, if someone has the equipment, well, let me rephrase that. Nursing homes are not required to provide the equipment, but they are required, it's, a, it's the resident's home, and they are required to uh, allow the resident to have that and to provide assistance to the resident. Uh, as part of caring for the resident and ensuring that he or she is able to, um, you know, have a decent quality of life and to um, a, a, um, a, and to achieve their highest psychosocial well-being. So those would all be things that I would cite if the facility says, "Oh, we don't have time to help, etc." It's their job to be making the time. Again, they make you know these are for-profit facilities mostly, and um, so it's important that we push them to, to make that time. Now, the all the states, this is something that we, that we did advocate for and we were glad to see happen. All the states now have the right to give nursing homes up to $3,000 each and a grant to pay for the, that equipment. So nursing homes can be applying for these grants to their state. Uh, I know here in New York, they just did a request for such proposals and they are, um, so the nursing homes themselves can um, can buy that equipment and get paid back for it with this grant money up to $3,000 and make that available. Is the nursing home reimbursed only for the cost of the SARS COVID-2 tests or do they receive a monetary allotment lump sum, of, lump sum of money to use? The latter might lead to misuse of the federal testing money, similar to the way money for medications is a money maker for nursing homes whose pharmacies often give residents the lowest cost generic medications frequently manufactured in other countries with little or no quality oversight and the nursing homes keep the extra funding dollars rather than a ref then refund those dollars to medicare well I, i'm not an, an expert on the uh, what the individual said in terms of summing up uh, but I, it, that sounds to me like it'd be fraudulent if they I mean, you know, they certainly are allowed to be paid for time um, and for, um, and, I, and I think that there are problems. Again, I want to be careful here because this is not something which I have expertise, but if they are overcharging, if, there's, if they're getting paid to provide a $20 pill and they're only providing a 17 cent pill, pill excuse me, 
then that seems to me like something that should be, um, that you should alert your attorney general's Medicaid for control unit about, or your state uh, auditor or controller. Uh, but the nursing homes aren't reimbursed for the testing. Uh, that's what's going on now. But one of the proposals that we are supporting is to try to get um, point of care, essentially, uh, testing in facilities themselves. So it's something we were actually just talking about yesterday about trying to get some you know, accurate um, testing devices that would be there in each facility. I think that would help open it up to, um, one, it, it would help uh, residents and care staff, but also help open it up to long-term care ombudsmen and families. So stay tuned. We'll certainly be providing updates if that goes anywhere. Uh, either if you join our um, alert list, you can see here, email info at ltccc.org, or you can sign up on our website or um, at our next program. Thanks, Sarah. You have time for more questions? Uh, yeah, let's 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 go. It's two oh six. We can go from questions to two fifteen. If a nursing home reopens and then a staff member or resident tests positive, will the entire nursing home be closed again to visitors for another twenty eight days? Is this up to each nursing home to decide? Uh, so I think that what that person is referring to is a. Um, is a New York State rule. That's that's the the policy that New York State promulgated uh, about a week or so ago. And yes, that would be the case. So I think it is. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see how that how that plays out and whether that is adjusted. Uh, states have made adjustments to their visitation, and the feds have made adjustments to their recommendations over time. So I hope you know what one of our goals is in our advocacy throughout this time period and going forward is that we should be learning from the mistakes that were made. We should be learning from our experience. Uh, we, we, we know many different things about the coronavirus now than we know more in different things than we did at the beginning of March, just, such as the use of PPE and stuff like that. So I hope that we'll learn and be able to figure out how to do that safely. But yes, I mean, whatever, whatever system the state um, puts together, as you're talking about here, that would have to be followed. And if there's something that interferes with, say, the 28-day um, requirement of the facility having no cases, then that would start the clock again, presumably. So I hope that helps answer the question. Norman asks, do you have any data on the facilities that have done a good job in keeping residents in touch with their families through phone and online intervention? Uh, so anything that we have on that, as far as I know and that I've read, has been all anecdotal. So there have been, you know, some reports here and there, but it really has been, you know, sometimes it's, it's generally been news reports. Uh, and but from what I understand, it also really varies. For some residents, it's been extremely helpful and maybe even literally a lifeline for them because they, uh, we, we've heard of cases of people that were dying of, of loneliness, uh, dying of because of failure to thrive, quote unquote due to COVID-19 uh, isolation. Uh, but for others, it could be confusing, it may be upsetting, uh, and it really varies uh, depending upon what the devices are, how the communication is conducted, and of course, um, you know, the, the particular residents and, and, and their families or loved ones. Before I read the next question, Angel, I'm sorry to hear that your brother passed. I didn't know that until I read your question and I'm so sorry for your loss. 
My brother was a seven-year resident at a nursing home and died two hours after being sent to the hospital. Obviously, his death is only captured in hospital stats. Is there any way it could be attributed to the nursing home? Anything I could do? Well, I would say, yeah, Angel, I knew about it before, but I am, again, so sorry about your brother. And you've been, you were one, have been a wonderful advocate for him and a wonderful advocate, period. Um, I would say, I think it's really important for us to be speaking to our state legislators and to be speaking to our members of Congress um, call, you know, to the extent that you're able to do that and, and get others to do that, even to, you know, just voice some of your concerns, it doesn't have to be a long statement, is, is really helpful because, uh, you know, as I said earlier in the program, we are advocating uh, for a bill, you know, in Congress to try to get reporting from January 1st. We tried advocating with CMS, the Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services, and they said no, they would not require retroactive reporting from the beginning of January. But we think that there should be, so we need more robust reporting. And I think it's important for our policymakers, again, in the state capitol and in, the, uh, in Washington, D.C., to hear that this is something that is of concern to people. Um, the next question is, how can facilities get more staffing when the conditions are so dangerous and the pay is low? Well, I think it's it's a problem that unfortunately has existed for a long time and feeds on itself. Um, nursing homes have an obligation to only take in residents for whom they have enough staff and for whom um, and it's not only enough staff, but staff that has the appropriate um, competencies and training, et cetera. So if we held them accountable for that, then that would make the staffing situation, I think, better for the staff that are in the facility. It would certainly make the care better for those residents. So even if they can't find, um, if they can't find more staff, then they should stop taking in residents. It's not a, a warehouse. It's a place where people live, and uh, residents obviously are human beings. So you, uh, they, nursing homes should be held accountable for not continuing to take in residents six hundred and seventy dollars a day or whatever they're getting paid without having the appropriate staffing there. And if you put that pressure on the, on the industry, um, especially on the, I would say on the for-profit side, then that would require them, it would push them at least, not require them, it would push them to be putting more into um, safety for staff, more into payment for staff, and more into a decent working condition for staff. It's not an easy answer. Most of these, these aren't easy answers, but they, uh, they're not easy in terms of, of advocacy, but they are simple in terms of if the providers, you know, if the nursing homes did the right thing, you wouldn't have these problems. And the reports that I've heard, at least, of nursing homes that escaped, um, you know, having COVID-19 were facilities that, that fostered their, their, their staff at the very beginning and that made sure that they were staffed up. And we had actually called for this in the beginning of March in a statement that we issued that facilities in the beginning of March should have been taking steps to amp up their staffing and to um, make sure that they had the protocols in place, which is again, mostly staffing to ensure that both residents are safe and staff are safe. I think we have time for one more question. 
one more question. <laughs> Eric, you want to choose it or you want me to choose it? Um, in your proposal for eliminating no strings attached, who do you envision overseeing where, how the money is being spent? Well, there's a couple of ways that we could do that. One is through the medical loss ratio, so that on any money that go that goes to the nursing home, 85% of it has to go to to care. When nursing homes receive money, they fill out what's called cost reports, and those cost reports are generally available on your state's website. Uh, some states do a better job of providing the information in a way that is usable. But you could see where 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 the money went. It's not perfect, but it but it is helpful. There's also something called a wage pass-through that has been used with mixed results, but it's a way, as, as the name implies, to ensure that the money passes through, the wage passes through and goes to, to wages for the care staff. So that would be one thing. Another way to give the money is, as I mentioned before, we, we are giving facilities up to $3,000 each for uh, electronic equipment for, uh, for the residents. So that's another way to give money and, and make sure that it is earmarked to something that benefits residents. There's certainly a lot of ways that it, which it could be done. It really comes down to accountability. And that's why our voices are so important because you know if you make a phone call to your state legislator, and if you, especially now with everything going on, as I mentioned before in Congress, make a, a phone call to your member of Congress and say that you want, you know, you want you want support. For nursing home residents, but it has to be accountable. It has to make sure um, that their quality is there, and has to make sure that it's not going to profits, etc. That that will make a difference because there are very powerful industry lobbyists right now who are spending money on the state level and on the federal level um, to get as much money as they can with as little to no accountability as possible. So I think we're going to end it there. Again, our next program is August 18th at 1 p.m. Uh, we thank you for bearing with us with a couple of the uh, technical issues, but I don't think it was too bad. And I think it actually, uh, hopefully this will go a little bit more smoothly. We'll get this up on the website, on our YouTube channel in um, by the weekend and uh, as a podcast, as well as a YouTube program. I hope you all are staying cool and safe and thank you very much for joining us.